Welcome to season four of the Hometown Haunts podcast, and we are starting it off strong with a fascinating topic and a wonderful guest. Folklore has a way of capturing the concerns and fears of society it exists within. Authors Leanna Renee Heaver and Andrea Jaynes focus their new book, A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, on famous, infamous, and lesser-known female ghosts of American history. From Bridget Bishop, the first person executed at the Salem Witch Trials, to our very own Ma Green haunting the Delta Queen, Heber and Janes explores the roles these ghostly legends play within society's memory. Due to tonight, tonight's topics, this episode may not be suitable for the youngest of ears, so listen, listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome everyone to season four of the Hometown Haunts podcast brought to you by the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities. Welcome, welcome. We have had a busy summer. I am glad you're able to join us. I am Kat Cloco, the host of the Hometown Haunts podcast. And tonight, along with me in the shadows, like every single week, all the time, we have Jen Kohler and Christina Wald. They'll be with me very shortly. So if you would like to catch up with us, you can check us out on Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter and Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And of course, we're always dying to hear about your personal encounters with the paranormal and fringe history from your neck of the woods. Send it to hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com or join and share it on our Facebook group, Hometown Haunts. We're an official podcast, Thank you, Jen. That can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to see us while we're doing the show, like right now, you can watch the video feed on YouTube. Find us by searching Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities. And please rate and review us on all these platforms so you can let other spooky lovers just like yourself know this lovely little slice of the internet exists. And of course, as always, all the links are in the show notes of all the media all right so it's been a while so let's take it with christina wald with the show news because there is a lot of it from your area <laughs> christina you're a busy lady mm-hmm. yes um i have a kickstarter starting this week uh sketching here and everywhere my sketching obsession launches next week or this week i guess yeah um and it is a book about sketching um i've been working on it for actually a very long time but it is finally coming to fruition and it showcases my sketches it has anecdotes about my experiences sketching which as i was doing some last minute editing i actually added a roswell story because Ooh. i was sketching in new mexico and i think it was in albuquerque and someone actually came up and said that they were related to the people that found the crash in Roswell. And he proceeded to talk about all this stuff for quite a long time while I was oh, sketching wow. about his experiences with the uh, UFO crash in Roswell. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but I have sketch exercises that I've developed working with my students. My husband and I developed this little tiny palette that we're selling with the book that seem, people seem to be really crazy about. Um, I've been an urban sketcher for years and we always love tiny gear. Yes. <laughs> and so this is like why people like it so much. It is the tiniest little, what is it, a watercolor or acrylic palette? 
It's for watercolors, yes. Okay. And so it's it either it has a velcro strap, so you can either wear it on your finger, or it has a it has a little modular clip you can put in it that will clip to your sketchbook. So it's so small it can go on your finger. Yeah, it's like it's it's less it's less than two inches. It's like an inch and three eighths by an inch and a quarter, mm -hmm. and I think it's like a quarter inch deep mm -hmm. and it's just you know like when you're sketching certain places like museums they often don't want you bringing in your huge pile of watercolors and stuff so this is something super tiny you could have in your pocket and then whip it out to work with your watercolor brush and paint um, in places that usually you wouldn't be allowed to not that we urban sketchers are that rebellious but we like to have our tools with us at all times right. but anyway so that's launching this week i'll have an update our next show um, and then I also have a one woman show opening at Columbia Plaza downtown, which is also going to be all sketches and there's going to be a show opening, but I don't know when that is yet. So I'll have that in the notes. As Leanna mentioned, we have books by the banks coming November 19th and Leanna will be there, our guest, and I will be there with Sloth's Treehouse Inn. And I'm hoping I can get them to carry a couple other books, but they're ones that have just come out. So, yeah. So for the, people who don't know what books by the banks is what oh, is it it is a big cincinnati book festival um and this is the first year they've had one i think since 2019 i think they mm -hmm. canceled it in 2020 and then didn't have one in 2021 and it is a great place to get um books of all types like they not only have a lot of local authors and illustrators they bring in some pretty big guns sometimes like i remember the woman who wrote gone girl was there and uh, they they have John Scalzi's come there a couple times. A lot of really great authors from around the country have uh, come to it. And it's a great place to do your Christmas shopping and buy books for relatives. Oh yes, yes, um, yes they have yes. lectures. They have talk about writing. They have actually have a writing competition now too. Um, that I believe just happened. I don't know that much about it. I've just been seeing posts about it online. Okay. Yeah, and it's actually at the Duke Energy Center this year yes. as well. So it is going to be massive and fun. So, yay. And then also, I have news from our cryptid walk that we did with the Washington and Circleville Parks District. So for those of you that are joining us from that wonderful event, hello, welcome. Nice to see you again. Uh, that was an event where on opening day, I told ghost stories for two hours straight and um there was lots of people that came about 70 we had in attendance for that christina was there and as well as our friend katie and also at the very end i got to tour the smith house which has its own ghost stories as well and they were telling me about that and the big event was the hide and seek challenge that went through the forest and it was featuring steve stagaline's uh, Sagalin's um, work from issue two of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities, which he worked on the Crosswick, one of the Crosswick Snake stories. So the, he illustrated a giant Bigfoot, a dry, giant Frogman, a giant Crosswick Snake, and a few other things that were hidden throughout the forest and fields in uh, Bill Yuck Park. And it was a, available for walking through for two weeks. And then at the end, you can vote who is your favorite cryptid. And we now have the winner of who is the favorite Ohio cryptid. And it is none other than the Ohio Grassman. The Grassman is the most popular cryptid. And unfortunately, um, the Crosswick Snake came third to, I think, the Frogman. So 
but there was like nine to 11 of them hidden around the forest when uh, my partner went through. They only found a few of them, I think three. So they were really well hidden, but it was popular and hopefully we'll have this event next year as well. So great things. All fun. Big over 300 people went through it in total. Wow. Yeah. So tonight we welcome back to the show and friend of the show, Liana Heber, award-winning author and paranormal history expert. A regular speaker at sci-fi, fantasy, and paranormal <laughs> conventions, she's appeared on film and television and on shows including Mysteries at the Museum and Beyond the Unknown. She's a three-time PRISM Award winner for her debut novel, The Strangely Beautiful Tale of Miss Percy Parker, and the Daphne du Maurer Award finalist for Darker Still. After earning a BFA in theater performance and focus study in the Victorian era, she spent many years in the professional regional theater circuit, skills that serve her well as a speaker and a ghost tour guide for Burroughs of the Dead in New York, New York City. Yes. Liana lives in New York, New York, and can be found online at lianareneheber.com. And of course, that link will be in the show notes. So welcome back, Liana. Thank you for your patience with us tonight, as we are all silly gals. It's tis the season when those of us who are career spooky people, like we've all uh, been for some time, mm -hmm. um, this is this is the month where we're absolutely loopy, and none of us know whether we're coming or going. Um, I've been on book tour, and I don't even know like what. I only know now I'm in New York because I'm in my I'm in my space. But mm -hmm. <laughs> but it has been um, I've been doing, you know, interviews from hotel rooms and various other things. And so I, I completely understand. Uh, welcome back to your show. Yes. <laughs> so thank you have, for having the time to join us again. Of course. No. Eager I would do anything. about this book. I, I'm so thrilled. And I was so excited when I last spoke with you to come back to talk about this book so um and definitely to pay homage to some of my hometown uh a, a hometown ghostly hero for <laughs> for certain um you know who lived through you know the time period that i write about in my fiction so yeah it was really delightful i i knew i knew going into this book we didn't we weren't entirely sure when we first started exactly who and what we were going to cover but i knew i was like i'm gonna find a really good a really good cincinnati ghost um, yes. Got it. Got to do the hometown proud. So yes, I will say every time you're on your sh on this show so far, we've talked about steamboats some at some point. <laughs> I mean, it is inextricable with Ohio history. So it, really it is. is one of those things where yeah, and I I of of all sort of you know travel conveyances, it is kind of my favorite. But I really love I love boats and uh, mm -hmm. and I love I love writing about and talking about them. And I just think it's very very interesting part of 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 the state history too. So um, yeah, it's just, it, it's a, it's a default. <laughs> yes. We got boats of all types. Yeah. Boats, canals and cholera. Those are the thing that Ohio is made of. <laughs> <laughs> and some good beer. There's, There's some, some good, good beer. beer brewing history. Like, you know, my yeah. German ancestors brought some nice things, a music hall, yes. beer, you know? Yes. Oh, so. yes. Yeah. So what, for our listeners who did not listen to our first podcast, because we have a lot of new ones. Hi, welcome, new people. Hi, welcome, everyone. Uh, what is Burroughs of the Dead? So Burroughs of the Dead is New York City's top rated, we are proud to say, 
ghost tour company. So it was founded by Andrea James, my co-author mm -hmm. of A Haunted History of Invisible Women, which is ostensibly what we're going to be talking about today. Not exclusively, but for the most part. Um, so A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts came out uh, just in time for spooky season. And uh, Andrea and I have worked together now for probably, I think it's been about eight years. Um, her and I met when we were both asked to tell a theatrical ghost story for a ghost story event at a bar in New York. And I really liked not only what she had to say about not, not only her, you know, uh, sort of performance as a storyteller, but I also really liked how she presented her take on ghosts in general and why they're important and why ghost stories are uh, a very necessary part of sort of the human existence. Um, and cause they do more than just tell a story. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I, I always knew that. And it was nice to, to see a fellow ghost story enthusiast tie it back into the living. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that it says as much about us as the living as it does about the stories we tell. Um, so right away there was like, um, you know, sort of an affinity of, of mission and kind of presentation. And so I had been aware of Birds of the Dead. It's like this, you know, top rated ghost tour company. They did these cool tours of, of lower Manhattan and um, they were expanding into doing some different tours uh, around the boroughs uh, of New York City. And so I kind of just assumed it was sort of like this empire of a of a savvy you know business plan it turns out it's, it was just andrea and her computer and <laughs> and she just made it look like there was an army of you know of staff and so i i said after the ghost story reading i said you know if you need another tour guide ghosts are kind of my thing uh it's definitely ghosts are in every bit of my of my fiction and they're my favorite thing to talk about. And I do have a tour guide's license, which in, in order to be a tour guide in New York City, you do have to be licensed. And it is a whole process. And you do have to pass a fairly extensive test. Now, this is good because New Yorkers like to talk about things, whether they are expert in it or not. And so it is good, in fact, to test said New Yorkers, whether or not that's the Empire <laughs> State Building or the Chrysler Building, because they will convincingly tell you maybe the wrong thing. Um, so the, the test kind of separates a little bit of like, no, are you serious about this? Or do you just want to listen to yourself talk? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> which is a very New York trait. Um, so presenting like, hi, would you like to hire me, you know, you know, amiably to mm -hmm. Andrea? Um, and she said, you know, I should probably take on an employee. And I was like, wait, you, you mean you don't have one? She's like, no. I was like, well, good job for making it seem like you did. Um, and so so I was the first hire in the company. And now there now there are, are several uh, like a stable of guides who have been with the company for years now. And it's and they're fantastic. Um, and uh, and so the the way this book ended up happening so me joining Birds of the Dead was was the first thing that happened in this was, you know, it would have been about, about eight years ago. And then um, I definitely just enjoyed walking around New York, talking about New York's history and making that contemporaneous with a ghost story, a ghost story happening in the present, kind of a present moment, a haunted place that's still an active space, makes this historical place very relevant to a modern moment, because at any moment you could have some sort of echo of the past that might be interacting with you at any point. And I think that's a very exciting place to be in that space of possibility. Mm -hmm. um, and uncanny things have happened to me through through some of my tours. Um, and I, I certainly am drawn to the paranormal because I've had lots of 
paranormal experience that's happened to me. I'm a skeptic first, as is Andrea. And then a, I'm a believer second. And uh, Andrea is more the scully to my molder um, <laughs> in that, like, still kind of holding on to skeptic to skepticism almost a little bit more than than she might need to. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm like, yeah, well, that that was a thing, though. But OK, OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but again, I don't tell anybody what to think and she doesn't tell anybody what to think because that's the whole thing with the paranormal is, as we all know, it's deeply personal. And yes. one person's paranormal experience is never going to mirror somebody else's. It's going to be entirely individual. Different senses are going to be involved or no senses at all. And so we operate as, a, as ghost tour guides and in our book, we operate from a perspective of everyone is welcome um, as long as you're nice. Um, be believers, skeptics and everybody in between. And we don't, again, we don't tell you what to think because we're certainly not going to try to answer the divine mystery or the existential questions for you. That's not our, that's literally not our job. It's way above our pay grade. So, um, so I'm really thrilled that I was able to kind of return the favor in terms of like, Andrea hires me as a ghost tour guide. I'm giving tours, an editor for a publishing house who really liked my tour had mentioned, you know, you should really do a ghost book of ghost stories, knowing that I had a lot of fiction under my belt and had, you know, been, I've been traditionally published since 2009. And I have had a book out or one or two books out a, a year since then. So, um, but I hadn't done nonfiction yet. However, I was speaking both as a ghost tour guide and just a general New York City tour guide. Um, I'd been speaking about historical facts and, and in a presentational capacity for a long time. And I had a lot of thoughts about how the framework of how we, uh, the living, talk about the spirit world. Um, so I, I had plenty of thoughts to put into a nonfiction. I just hadn't been sort of put to the test yet. But when an editor approaches you and says, hey, you should do a thing, um, this business is hard. You say yes to the thing that the editor <laughs> approaches you to do because you would like to stay published and stay employed. So, so I said, great, let's talk about this. And I said to, to the editor, I said, I'm, I'm only going to be comfortable going forward with this if I can bring my boss into this book. Not because I don't feel like I have my own things to say, but because the angle and the way in which I'm presenting this very respectful and history first paranormal second uh, presentation comes from the ethos and the mission of Burrows of the Dead as a company. So that was really important for me to be like, hi, I'm, I'm only here because I'm a part of your mission, Andrea and company. So, um, and then she was gracious to say, yes, let's do this. And we've had a blast doing it. Um, it's taken some twists and turns and it's been, it's been a, a wild experience because all, all things are, uh, and unpredictable in many ways. And the original editor who wanted to do the book, um, ended up not being able to because, uh, the something else happened in house and it ended up not going forward within that original house. So we had this wonderful proposal package that was ready for my editor at Kensington, who I'd been working with in my fiction, my fictional okay. ghost stories. So she was ready to look at it and she loved it and she took it on um, pretty much as soon as we had, had handed her the proposal package, we being my agent <laughs> handed yeah. her the proposal package. Um, thankfully, I don't, I'm not good at legalese. So I'm really glad to have an agent navigate all of that all that kind of thing. But um, so yeah, so that the, I was approached about in 2018. And so it took several years through and through the pandemic to get everything finalized with the publication details and then the process of writing it. Right. Um, and then just a lot of back and forth about it. And the, the very brilliant thing was that our editor 
Liz May, Elizabeth May at Kensington, she had the brilliant idea of how to kind of um, uh, formulate the book because originally it was just going to be a book of New York ghost stories. And then when Kensington wanted to take it on, they said, we, we like your approach, but we would like it to be uh, the, the country. We would like to you to touch down in other spaces outside of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, we, we said, sure, that's fine. We can do that. We, we were not given like a certain metric of how many ghosts we had to do from which places we were not going to do it by geography. Liz was really insistent that we do it by trope and stereotype. Okay. Like these, these, and so that's, that's really, I think, you know, and Andrea and I've been saying on, on these, um, when we discussed the book, it really was a, a stroke of genius for Liz to be like, this is how we organize this. We mm-hmm. organize this into trope and stereotypes. So by that, I mean groups and categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have Death and the Maiden about, uh, you know, the tragedy of women dying young and how that can sometimes be romanticized and very complicated. We have mothers and wives. Obviously, these are roles that women have been expected to play for a long time. We have quote unquote witches. We have quote unquote mad women. And those quotes are very important because the Salem witches were not witches and uh, very often quote unquote mad women were not in fact insane. Right. Um, so these are things that have been cast as aspersions. We have spinsters and widows uh, positing the concept of why are we so afraid as a society of women living alone? So, mm-hmm. and then we, and then we, we um, of course have to have a bad girls, Jezebels and fallen women category. Um, and then there's frauds, fakes, and myth-making, because when you start to talk about the paranormal and the history of things like spiritualism, um, not only is it very um, rife with fascinating intersections of women's history and even the women's rights movement, but it is also filled with people who were um, not being forthcoming about uh, where their quote-unquote talents were, in fact, complete fraudsters. So mm-hmm. we we don't uh, we we don't escape that. Um, and we want to make sure that we're we're when we're talking about the history of um, you know mediumship as was uh, put forward by the 19th century spiritualists um, that we're that we're calling out the fact that not everybody was was doing it for the right reasons or were being honest about what they were doing. Right. Um, they were just magicians uh, dressing it in fashionable clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of the structure of, of the book. That's a little bit how it came to be, and uh, and we're. Have we have been very very blessed by having really interesting discussions about this book um, because it really does. We ask a lot of questions. We ask the reader to consider a lot of questions, and so it's been by far some of the most meaty discussions I've ever had in talking about a book. And so we we really welcome all of that. I would say because it's a meaty book. (laughs) So yeah. So reading through this, I will really suggest. actually applying this to be purchased by folklore departments at universities because this was um, like reading some of the conversations I had when I was studying to be a cultural anthropologist. And uh, that's why I have the haunted halls book, but yeah, it's a lot of this reading through, I felt I could see the influence that Joseph Campbell had um, folklorist Jan Scott, um, Brunvand had mm-hmm. uh, D- Dr. Brunvand and uh, Richard Dorson and a lot of these uh, their forefathers unfortunately because back in the 1950s we still didn't have a lot of female um, social 
social scientists. Mm-hmm. They started coming in, in the 1960s and 70s, and now they are prevalent within social sciences. But if I've, I read a lot of these, I'm like, yes, this is very much a topic in a lens, as Christina said, this was Christina's words, I'm stealing them, ha, um, that it was a unique lens to present all of this history with. And Christina, you've been uh, listening to the audiobook. What are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about it is how you view it anthropologically. Is that a word? Did I say that right? Okay. Yeah, you can say anthropologically. Okay, okay. Um, I have a tendency to make up words. So, you know, I was not sure. So do anthropologists. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's fascinating to look at it through this lens because the reason why I was particularly fascinated by the fact that you talk about mostly women being on these ghost tours is because like any show you see on television, it's all men, like all these ghost shows. It's a bunch of dudes. Dude and- Run is a famous mentioning from Ghost Hunters. <laughs> Sorry. It's it makes me laugh still thinking about it. And, Keep and going, Christina. I'm just—I I almost want to see you all do a show where you're doing investigations and that sort of thing because it would be so refreshing than the a bunch of guys like scaring themselves all the time. And and I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and and you have a lot of and I I noticed the trope um, angle that you have and that was really fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. It was important to me when I when I was thinking about my introduction, because um, Andrea and I both have an introduction into this. Um, I had the great fortune, good fortune of meeting Katrina Weidman, um, the the one lady on all those paranormal sort of, you know, ghost yeah. bro shows. It was her um, and Chris Williams. And that right? was it for a very long time. Right, exactly. And so I, I, I had um, went as soon as this book was going forward, I I messaged Katrina and I said, you know, and I'd referenced, um, we had met on a media tour and she was just the nicest, nicest person. And we just had had the lo- most lovely conversation about being a woman in the paranormal field. And, um, and so I presented, you know, the topic of this book and I said, I'd love to get your thoughts in our introduction, if at all possible. And she did, she gave us some lovely thoughts about needing to kind of hold her own. And also too the fact that this is, uh, she's very sensitive to some of the trauma that is associated with the ghosts, which is a very different angle than you have some almost an antagonistic and kind of daring the ghosts and, and frankly, often disrespectful tone that some mm-hmm. of the other sort of more jump scare t- type of shows are going for in terms of like, you know, that's sort of almost like it feels like it's a Hollywood effect versus people who are going on our ghost tours, at least in Manhattan, when you look at birds with dead's messaging and our and and the way that we talk about ghost stories if you're looking for a jump scare and someone in a costume that's you're we're not the tour for you um you're you're going to want to go to an actual like constructed fabricated haunted house um we are going to tell you history dark history difficult history complicated history and then we're going to tell you uncanny things that have happened around this site where some of these very unfortunate things took place or in some cases sometimes very funny and and lighthearted there are not everything is doom and gloom in this book but mm-hmm. like you were you were noting cat like this is not necessarily a book that is suitable for um kids this is not at all a book meant for kids because we're dealing with very dark history and dark themes um we're dealing with women who were abused women who were murdered 
assaulted um, and, and any number of uh, uncomfortable details that are real historical fact or there are missing pieces uh, mm -hmm. and it's still an unsolved mystery. So, but a lot of times we're dealing with lots and lots of death surrounding women. And as, as we know from the statistics of domestic violence and things like that, it's just, it's a difficult, difficult conversation to be having. And there were moments when I, when both Andrea and I had to walk away from what we were writing. I, I, there's only so much I could take about the, about the witch trials and, yeah. and the, the, the absolute you know, farcical injustice of them, oh, you yeah. know, and you think you, you think you sort of know just how ridiculous it is. And then you dive into a little bit more of the research and it's just even more ridiculous and arbitrary and punishing to these marginalized women than, than you even realized, um, you know, down to the point of jailing a four-year-old. Yeah. Um, it just makes me angry. The all I, around I just, reading I just, Yeah. Lots of, Lots of uh, Madeline Kahn gifts of flames on the side of my face um, mm. going through this this particular book. So, yeah. um, you know, it was but we had to kind of like come back to, OK, we can't we don't want this book to sound shrill or angry mm. or like a harpy screaming, even if we wanted to sometimes. Um, so we had to come back to the fact that we love our subject matter. And so yeah. sort of trying to lead with love in this because it is you know, it is a very difficult uh, topic, but we, and we also are, are not going to be taking that tack of aggression or yelling mm -hmm. at the ghosts or whatever to try to get them to interact with us. And we're not, you know, Andrea and I are not paranormal investigators. We're ghost tour guides. Those are very, mm -hmm. very different things. It is. Um, and no, you know, uh, I, I myself don't feel the, the same call to be a param paranormal investigator as I feel called to be, a sort of a a guide to haunted places mm -hmm. and and a curator of the stories and and a and a kind of a a folklorist of the stories that are told mm -hmm. about these buildings um i i myself don't feel like i need to go in and prove anything personally mm -hmm. i have i have a deep belief in the paranormal and then i sort of let certain buildings speak to me. If I have uncanny encounters, I, I absolutely do share them, but only if I've ruled out everything else first. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm on a parallel track to the paranormal investigator, yeah. but that's not something that Andrea and I personally either feel really called to do. Although some of the equipment is fun and we've been around it. We've certainly been around uh, and been in and out of spaces where people have been doing investigations and I have taken part in some, at least as a as an audience member, yeah. because it's been a part of a historic house museum's fundraising campaign. Yes, um, and, and they make so, good yeah. fundraisers. Exactly. So that's you know and that's an important part of all of this discussion too is the fact that like monetizing these things is a very complicated, tricky, difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of historic museums that's a revenue stream for them that they can't afford not to do. So you really can't blame them. A lot of people are able to keep their doors open because of these things. Yeah. So it's like, and that was an interesting point that you brought yeah. in at the end. It was just the intro, but also touched again with the shirt waste factory fire was monetizing the dark history of these locations. And as a paranormal investigator, somebody who has guided historical mm -hmm. events, we were just on one in Marietta as a fundraiser for historical society and also as an author of true uh true history haunted history i was just like i am part of this terrible cycle of abusing the spirits in whom we love and it was kind of 
my like uh, it broadened my horizons in the paranormal and how we look at it further which I appreciated felt a lot of guilt for though because mm. you're just like I'm retelling the stories of how how this girl horrifically murdered her family and it's being sold for profit but also we're documenting this happened and right bringing right. it to the forefront and trying to take lessons to learn from right this. that's the thing it's it's all about the intent so we're not trying to be a scold about mm. the industry that we ourselves are participant in we are not trying to be a scold we're just calling for the level of love and care and respect that i know that you're bringing to that you're not like i think you know the fact that there is guilt in any of us means that we're actually conscious and cognizant of trying to not go at it in a crass way Mm -hmm. in a disrespectful way. Mm -hmm. Telling this, the, the history in and of itself is not disrespectful. That is fact. If you are, uh, if you are also aware of the power dynamics in play, you mm -hmm. know, if you are, if you're not comfortable with, with difficult history, then I encourage, you know, listeners to never go to, on a plantation tour then because you should be hearing about slavery and you should be hearing about how awful it is. And if you can't handle that, then sit with yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, sort of who is, who is telling the stories um, too, and making sure that the, the voices of, of those who have been marginalized can be told from their perspectives too. Um, and so I think a lot of times it's like a certain amount of like ethical, you can kind of tell what, whether a company is going at it from just the shock value or the jump scare aspect, or if they're doing it from a place of respect. Yeah. And so that's all that we're sort of calling for is just making sure that everyone is respectful in the ways mm -hmm. and the angles in which they interact with this. Um, and also willing to listen to those who might be from uh, any representative group of a marginalized person who yeah. is going to be their own sort of burdened heart to any yeah. of these things. So, And that, that came out loud and clear in the book. I think you two did a good job. Jen, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, actually, a couple of things. I think it's important that we tell the stories and not feel guilty about it because you're, you can't forget how you can't forget history and people need to learn from it, especially how women were treated mm -hmm. all the time. And then the victims and their, their, their names are remembered. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot, there's a fine line between that and, kind of like turning turning serial killers into folk heroes yeah right. it's kind of like like with Dahmer I've been yeah. I couldn't oh, yeah. finish it mm -hmm. I couldn't yeah. finish it because and I'm fascinated by serial killers but you know Evan Peters is a very attractive man and that just sends the wrong message to me mm -hmm. I just and there's already people out there that want to emulate or yeah yeah that look up to these people that brings and up I, a few yeah. different points like going back to our episode of amy of look road mm -hmm. where we actually looked into the actual murders that happened there and how the amy of look road story managed to keep the memory of these girls alive through folklore and i've yeah. seen that happen play out in a book that i wrote in a case that i covered in indiana but you also did that wonderfully in this book too, Liana. And um, I had another point that I was going to make. Oh, yes. Um, it's interesting with investigations when we do do them, even we took Jen to the Anchorage man mansion as well. Christina, you 
where we all were there. Um, women get the most activity a lot during mm -hmm. paranormal investigations mm -hmm. because it is female ghosts who feel the most safe approaching them. Also children um, mm -hmm. as well. And as an investigator, um, I'll go in, if it's an actual investigation, I'll go in and sit alone and we get a lot of chatty talk from the female ghosts of the area because if there's a lot of men, they're not going to speak. But, and then also if you get abusive men, they'll come through as well. And uh, it, it's a double-edged sword. It, you yeah. have to sit and listen to their sass over whatever spirit box that you're using, a medium, whatever. I, I want to say medium, but not necessarily as a person. I mean, as a vehicle right. to, of communication. Um, yeah, you get to listen to their sass. And you're like, I don't, like, I've, I've recorded men making kissy noises at me. <laughs> during interviews there there were phantom men they were not there but i got a very chauvinistic man going whenever i was speaking during an interview with the house owner and this is a ghost so those attitudes can cross over <laughs> and this book covered that pretty well so yeah thank you <laughs> well but you. then your stories can set the record straight too mm -hmm. if there's a misconception out there <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, to your point, Jen, I think the the, the problem with the Dahmer, um, the miniseries, is that the victims' families were were concerned. And I think if the victims' families are concerned, I think you need to kind of like listen to what they're saying. Yeah. Um, well, because they that's were still... showing how he did things. Yeah. I don't I not need to see this. that. No. I don't need no. to see it. No. And it, there is a fine line between telling history and fetishizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so exactly. I, I I absolutely believe, like as Jen said, we have to tell history so that these names are recorded and that the names are known and said and that their historic injustices can be on our minds as cautionary tales. That's the thing, especially with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. I use that. I use those horrific circumstances. And I, and I tell the grisly details, not because I'm relishing in the grisly details, but because I really need to drive it home to people how we can't take our labor laws for granted mm -hmm. um, because it was, you know, this all happened because there were no labor laws at that time and everything that could go wrong in that fire did go wrong. And it was a horrific loss of life. 146 people dead, 123 of them were women as young as 14 years old. And I get, I get on a tear when I'm talking about it and I always get choked up and God forgive me if I ever stop getting choked up because I should never, I should never be okay talking about that horrific mm -hmm. fire. Um, and the women that were locked into their death, um, mm -hmm. just the unconscionable aspect of that, but using that as a rally and cry to make sure that we in our modern era are keeping track and holding leaders accountable and holding factory owners accountable because the garment industry worldwide still has fires and still has these problems. And it's not just the garment industry. It's, you know, it's, it's many different industries where if safety protections are in any way eroded, these things can happen. And, mm -hmm. you know, companies will, will factor in a certain amount of acceptable loss of life. And I, I want to push back against that yeah. number um, whether, you know, it's, it's, whether it's women in the, in 1911 or it's oil workers out on the BP horizon when that blew up. Um, mm -hmm. and it, you know, there, there's all of these things that are happening in our world that we just have to be cognizant of. And so for that, in that case, the history really is quite truly contemporaneous 
And I, I feel like I'm echoing some of the newspaper reporters at the time that were reporting on the fire. And they were using some very, very grisly details, but because they were trying to get up, up the point across that this was what these women the, the year prior had been marching about mm -hmm. in what had been the largest labor uprising in our country's history called the uprising of the 20,000, which happened in 1910. And because of that uprising, because of that strike and because of conversations happening at that point led by young women, it did make change in the industry. It, every single garment um, manufacturer did change some of their safety uh, procedures, except for triangle. <laughs> and that's just what's the, and, and, the, and then it just was this, was this, horrific tragedy that just set set everything in motion but it shouldn't have had to take that it should not have had to take that ma massive amount of death mm -hmm. to create a livable workspace for people but anyway well, yeah that memories are short they're yeah. very short people forget and then they do what they they just repeat themselves and i think even with like the grisly details as awful as they are to hear we people need to know what other people are capable of yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what I with all the true crime that I listen to, that's what I take from it. And mm -hmm. I guess in a weird way, try to prepare myself in case I'm ever in a situation. It 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 helps. Yeah. And reading that particular chapter reminded me of two other landmark things, which were the Eastland disaster in Chicago, which yes. happened just a few years later, killed more people than the Titanic. And yeah. then also in Chicago, the Iroquois Theater firebombs. Yes. Yes. So, which was, I think, a few years before uh, Shirtwaist. But these were all, these they all have ghosts associated with them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not so much as a sensationalization of going, look at the dead, everyone. It's more of, remember that this happened. And right. ghost stories keep their memories alive. Mm -hmm. And it was all women and young children who died in these disasters. Every single yeah. one of them, majority were women. Young yeah. women between 14 and 26. Yeah. And you look at the um, the steamboat fire that happened in 1914, um, the General Slocum, which was uh, all women and children um, mm -hmm. because there weren't the, the safety inspections were not. They didn't look and inspect the life jackets. They didn't inspect the ship. They didn't, you know, and, and that happened in New York. And, it, and, and what's what was horrific about that one is that everyone was watching from the shore and it happened like 10 feet from the shore, but because of the way the currents go, they couldn't get to them. Oh. And people, some people died just trying to get to them mm. um, from the, from there's a really nasty back current that was like unable to cross again, the same way that like the triangle shirtwaist victims were looking at the fire department just two floors below, but the fire chief had not been given enough budget to create uh, ladders to go tall enough to the eighth, ninth, and tenth floors. They don't, their ladders only reach to the sixth floor. Yes, it's just you know seeing seeing help within reach and then not being able to get to it. It's just like there's just the the sort of the insult to 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 injury mm -hmm. in all of that. And there's just just that there is that sort of helplessness. Even as even when I'm telling these stories, there's a helplessness in that. But I just sort of use it as a rally and cry to make sure that we are not relaxing. Uh, yes. on on our duty to make sure that we are being the best fellow citizen to our our people that we can be mm -hmm. um and uh because it's just like you know in these cases we have to look out for each other if if sometimes people who are making decisions might not so then that's gonna have to be up to us yeah so moving on to a more cheery ghost story <laughs> My girl. would be 
Ma Green, which I know, Christina, you have been chomping at the bit to talk about. I know I ordered this book the minute it came on available for pre-order so we could talk about Ma Green. I have been watching the update status through my bookstore for six months. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, Christina, you really love Ma Green. I mean, how could you not love her? Yeah. I mean, it's everything about her is so contemporary, actually. Her her gender-bending, being a captain of a boat when women were considered bad luck yeah. in the ships. <laughs> when, ironically, ships are named after women. Hmm. Yep. And I, I love, just as a side note, that there's the Delta Queen and her sister, the Delta King. So, yeah. Yeah. It's So, Leanna, can you tell us about Ma Green? I love Ma Green. Okay, so Mary Becker Green. Mary Becker Green is her name. And she was born in the 19th century. And she lived a long life. And she married a steamboating man. Mm. And uh, so her husband... And her founded the Green uh, Steamer Line. So the it was the Green Family Steamer Line. And she was co-owner in that company. Mm -hmm. And she watched him at the wheel fastidiously. She learned she was just, she was a sponge for information. And she just was one of those people that just like loved life and lived life and learned as she lived. And there really was just about... It seems like there's nothing she couldn't do. Mm -hmm. um, and so she was also the, just this very evidently affable and fun lady, just a fun presence to be around. Um, and there's just some wonderful uh, pictures of her. Um, there's a, there's a two part story on the website called we Lunk. Um, and I can give you guys the links uh, in, in the, for the show notes for these two, these two articles Um from uh, West Virginia history. So, so her, her history is tied between West Virginia history as well as Ohio history. Yeah. She was um, born in Marietta. So this exactly. just ties us back to the last so, episode exactly. where we were in Marietta. So All yeah. Right. And, and it's such a great, you know, and, and so she was, she was aware of rivers right early on, you know, and watching rivers very early on. So rivers really fascinated her, which was good because you need to understand rivers deeply um, if you're going to be living on them. And uh, so um so her and her husband were, you know, traversing uh, the, the up and down both the Ohio, going along the Mississippi, doing, um, you know, sort of riverboat tours, basically. And um, and people would buy tickets just from Ma Green's company, um, even though there's no alcohol allowed on the ship. So she was an absolute teetotaler. So there was she, she was a lady who liked to have fun. She would go dancing. Oh, she would dance in the ballroom all the time, but there was no alcohol in on the ship. So you know that her company had to be good for people to forsake booze mm, to go on yeah. her boats. Um, so and and you know she gave birth in, during like an ice jam, and so you know she in the middle of this you know crisis on the ship gives birth, goes back to piloting, take turns with the baby, sews curtains for the guest rooms. You know, and then checks in on everybody. I mean, it just like there really is. She really was the woman who had it, who who could kind of do it all, um, and and was completely unapologetic about any of it. Um, so she was the first woman to obtain a steamboat pilot's license in 1892, um, and this really paved the way. It's like there there was some fantastic articles written about her. She. Um, 
she just uh she said yes to any challenge she, she was on like she she finished first in a riverboat race and so there was a lot of press about all of this and she was just you know basically very upfront about of course i won i know what i'm doing you know and but she but she was never mean she never put anybody down she was always you know again this this kind of lovable affable lady and the and some pictures of her at the helm this this sort of stately looking woman but she's got this like sparkle in her eye she's got this little smile and you just know that she's a firecracker right even just looking at her you can tell um and uh so she she really paved the way a lot of other like women applied for various trade licenses in various different um fields after she kind of broke that open because i think for in a lot of times you know if you're told you can't do something there really is a bit of an internalized internalized oppression that sets in and a lot of people think that well then i can't uh, society doesn't allow me to do this so i can't do this then there's an example of somebody that, who does do something and you're like oh maybe i can so she really did um just by live being a living example really open a lot of doors for female pilots across any kind of medium so um so in terms of her uh the, the delta queen was sort of the the ship that was kind of her sort of her baby. Um, when her husband passed away, um, the she uh, she and her son then managed the company after. Um, and she stayed on the boats and was, was you know, still keeping it as a family business. Um, and steamboats were going a little bit out of style by the time that they purchased the Delta Queen. And they purchased it at auction for like a very small amount of money um, for what it was worth. And, and they refurbished it a bit and they put it back onto the, they, they had this elaborate, getting it up to the Ohio River was like a whole production number. And I I, I won't go into all the details, but it, I, I mentioned it in the book. It, just, it was an elaborate labor of love to even to get this boat back to Ohio at all. And, uh, but, it went but through they the Panama it. Canal. I mean, it's why it's yeah. honestly wild. It had, and it was boarded up for some of it. Some of it had to be towed along and then some of it could do on its own. And it just, it was just like kind of this incredible, uh, you know, around the world in, in 80 rivers. And, uh, um, it was, uh, but it was, they just believed in this boat. And so she really, really bonded with this boat and she had a stateroom on the boat that was hers. And that was where she spent most of her time until she died in the stateroom of the Delta Queen. And activity from Ma Green's spirit was almost instantaneous. Um, she really never left that ship. Um, she is still captaining that ship, which is the title of my chapter on her is still captaining her ship. Um, and, it, and her presence would be felt in many different ways. Um, she would be, um, if there was something wrong with the ship, she would wake uh, engineers or staff people up with a shove, with a shout, with jostling, with, you know, something. Um, there were phone calls made uh, to the captain's quarters from the stateroom um, <laughs> that would, when no one was there. Um, her picture has been known to come to life when people are looking at it. And she's, it's like her life force because she was this lively lady has been imbued into every image of her. And she would like literally actually came to life through a documentarian's camera when he was focusing in on her and the picture moved. Um, and so I just, I, the, the details about her, um, it's easy to kind of ascribe this sort of larger than life a a aspect to her, but she really kind of, you know, if anybody deserves this larger than life uh, aspect, it's her. And my, my favorite thing, my very favorite thing about all her hauntings 
is that the company who was managing the Delta Queen after her passing had the audacity to try to build a bar in her ballroom. <laughs> Ma Green yeah. would not tolerate alcohol on her ships. I mean, did she stutter? No, Mary Becker Green <laughs> was not about to have alcohol on her ship. So as they started construction on that bar, what do you know? A barge crashes into the Delta Queen right in the ballroom, destroys the bar, and when they pull the barge out, everyone stares in astonishment at the name of that ship, the Mary B. It's like the ultimate mic drop. Oh yes, it is from beyond. And I, I, when I, when I read that story, when I read about this, I, I literally was like in my in this exact chair, and I went, oh, because <laughs> it literally was like like a like someone had won a goal in a sports ball moment. Like it just felt like this is wonderful. This delightful, like no way, no way. Yeah. But it's just it's so I feel like, but but if if it could be anybody that did that, of course it was going to be Mary Becker Green. Like yes. she just was not, you know, she was this force of nature. So again, I keep saying that, but it just really, she knew I'm really her excited rivers. for you. She, she knew, knew her she boats, knew, <laughs> and she knew what she didn't want, and she did not want you to be drunk on her ship. Exactly. My God. And I, I just, I'm, I'm so tickled. Yes. I'm yeah. So tickled. It, it's she's such an amazing lady. Um, and she still haunts the Delta Green, the Delta mm -hmm. or not the Delta Green. Oh, uh, that was a good goodness. slip up. That was, that was yeah, perfect. that was a good I mean, it was, I mean, she would, she really probably called that. would appreciate that. Yeah, the Delta Queen. Called after her name. Um, it, it hovers between being ported in Chattanooga, mm -hmm. Tennessee, and then St. Louis, Missouri. It depends on, I think it's still Captain Williams that is the head. Yeah, I think and, so. And his, and his wife, which I love their meet cute story thanks to ma yeah it, it's so yeah oh yeah she yeah i should say she's a matchmaker and on mm -hmm. in her many many list of talents she's also a matchmaker because yeah because yeah there was a um basically the purser for the ship um and the captain of the ship um there was a spectral encounter and it was them discussing all of this that sort of like in the middle of the night um brought them together with this inexplicable moment uh and and then they late later would say yeah we're, we're kind of ma green's kind of responsible for mm -hmm. for us being together which i think is fantastic so um so yeah that that was really delightful to have a change of pace story where yes. it is not doom and gloom and this is a woman who died as she lived uh loving what she did um without trauma or drama and and that she had this you know loving family and considered her 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 uh, passengers her family mm -hmm. and vice versa um she was dancing the virginia reel the day before she died so Aww. you know she she went out like she just and it was just one of those you know goes to sleep and doesn't wake up kind of thing mm -hmm. and um you know hey if that's i mean that's how i hope to go i guess you know you couldn't ask for a better way um and then just because i think and i think ships in and of, in and of themselves have, have such a capacity to be haunted anyway yeah um so it it just is kind of a fun aspect of you know women are very associated you know in folklore with water in mm -hmm. general um you you mentioned the fact that ships are always called she mm -hmm. um there there are so many ghost stories about ships uh and I think that this is just this this was a way to kind of bring all of these, you know, uh, 
large kind of parallel topics together into one quirky lady's story. So, yes. um, and also just kind of a, you know, a breaking the glass ceiling moment. So, yes. And what struck me reading this is people are still paying money to go on a boat ride with Ma Green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To this day. Absolutely. She's been gone for what? 80 years. No. Yeah. Almost. About, yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. She lived. I mean, it was a long full life and I just, I love that she, you know, kept it in a family business for as long as she could. And then it's still, I, I think the, I think everyone on that ship still considers her a part of the family and, and it's or sort of extended family. I think that she, I, I hope that ship never goes out of service because, yeah. and it, and it's, it's fate was not secure. Mm-hmm. Um, even just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a precarious thing. And I was like, I, I just was very concerned. I was like, Oh no, what's Ma going to do? If yeah. her ship is like out of commission, I was like, Oh no, what happens? And then that was, this was like, a, I was concerned about what happens if, if they like would, decommission that ship. Oh no. I would hope like, they turn it into a museum or something. Right. You think? It's pretty well I would known. hope. Yeah. It's it has a lot of them. passionate followers. It does. That, that boat. <laughs> I hope that, and I hope that they will get a few more from our podcast today and a few more from reading this book because I want, so, so take a trip on the Delta Queen, everybody. If you ever see it, keep moving near you. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, I know. I will buy a ticket when they're back. Do you remember Tall Stacks? Yes. Oh, I loved Tall Stacks. Yeah. I was on the Delta Queen on, in during tall stacks I had to like people who don't know what tall stacks is please explain me okay it i think because i was never able to go to it and i only became aware of it because they worked at the empire i was still in a cornfield during tall stacks so this was all new to me (laughs) this is only legend so and it was basically a steamboat festival where all the working steamboats came to cincinnati and everybody just went and looked at them it was amazing you could take tours of them i went to Mm -hmm. both of them Oh, you cool. could take tours of them and it was just a, it was a really neat event i'm surprised they haven't done it again i know I think it it's was a money it's got to be a money issue it was a money issue and yeah. then and then obviously the pandemic wouldn't have allowed for any of that either but yeah that i totally went to that as a kid um and that and my parents reminded me because so, um part of my book tour was going out to see my sister uh, in denver where she runs a brewery there and Ooh. so my parents went with me to that and we were talking about this chapter and my parents were like, yeah, when, when you, we took you to tall stacks, you were on the Delta queen. And I was like, oh, that was the, of course it was. And I, I, I feel bad that I hadn't even mentioned that in the chapter that, oh, by the way, I was on this ship. <laughs> I was on the ship. So, so I was, you heard it here, folks. I was on the ship. I've never been on it. I've only seen pictures of it. So what was it like as a kid? Just, I mean, enormous and grand. I mean, I think when you see one of the, when, when you see, a truly magnificent ship like that. It just seems like, it just seems like such a behemoth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably also relative to being a small child, but, um, but I, I just, there, there was something magical about, you know, the, the sort of the crowns on the top of all the steam stacks, which is, mm-hmm. which is how I had always thought the queen city was named for the crowns on all the steamboats because, you know, Ohio, Cincinnati was like the honeymoon capital of the country in a, a chunk of the 19th century because mm-hmm. of music hall, because of all the industry there, because of all these wonderful uh, picturesque views and because of the riverboat cruises were considered very romantic. And so I had always been told that the queen city was because of the crowns on the, on the tall stacks, um, the smokestacks or the steam stacks rather, sorry. 
<laughs> but then I had to clarify. I was like, before I say that in this book, I should probably clarify. When was the first time that the Queen City was used? Oh, it's Longfellow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we go, all right. Okay. I guess it can go to a poet. Fine. Mm. So, yeah. But it's, it, but it's this interesting thing, though, where you hear something as a kid and you're like, this is how yeah. this nickname of this place came to be. Yeah. And it's, you know, um, sticks with you. And then <laughs> I'm just glad I hadn't dug my heels in on that one. Yeah. And Charlotte, North Carolina has a lot to say about Cincinnati also being known as the Queen City. Oh, really? I I always thought it was the hills formed a crown. Oh, that's a neat take. Like the seven hills? What is it, seven hills or something? That makes a lot of sense, too. That also works. But I did not grow up here, so Mm -hmm. take it with a grain of salt. I I really don't know. I knew it from Longfellow. Yeah. 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 So I I do I do mention the, the the poem in in the chapter because it, it was important to get it down into when was it first in print mm-hmm. because it had been colloquially possibly known as the queen city before it was in print but it's like tra- tracing back the the first time in print that's <laughs> that's sort of helpful in, in our yeah. line of work right yes yeah. well now it's the the logo <laughs> well yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah it, no now it, now it, that you just... got now that the, now that it's got merch yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. i mean it's it's just it is refreshing because just in your book so many of the stories about women are traumatic ones and the idea that somebody stayed around not because of a traumatic thing that happened to them but because they're having so much fun and lived such a full life that they wanted to still be involved after they died i think is kind of a game changer in a way i mean it's not a it's kind of a unique story Mm -hmm. um has there been much done about like have they made movies or you said documentaries it's is is it not gotten as much attention maybe because it doesn't have the trauma there's not victims there's not i think yeah i think honestly that's where she's just sort of this delightful story of history i think there's probably not as much angst as to why there hasn't been like a a movie about her i mean i would love to watch a movie about her but you know I, I, I do too. think you I do think you you hit on it in that that there's not really a lot of conflict. There's yeah. just, you know, but I, I even though I, I would just watch I would just, you know, obviously there was not it wasn't always easy to be navigating these ships. There was often great dangers involved. And, you know, these ships could easily catch fire, um, too. So, like, there's all kinds of possible dangers that were happening. So I, I feel like, you know, there would be enough conflict to to do a, a film about her. But, you know, I was unfamiliar with her story outside of reading some ghost books about Cincinnati. And she came up a couple of times and um, and I talked to a few historians and um, and they pointed me to, to some, you know, to some resources um, about her. So I'm and I think that there might be more that's going to be uncovered, too. I, I think Queens of the Queen City is going to do a little bit more about her as well um, as a blog. Because I know one of the historians there was going to be speaking with some of the extended family members. So, Ooh, nice. so I think, you know, history is always changing. That's the great thing about this. And there's, you know, there's even things that are still coming to light about some of the historic houses that we write about. <laughs> In fact, there was just something that the Merchant's House just discovered with their house historian that they were like, oh, by the way, we just found something that kind of just prove some of the things that we've been saying for a while now so hmm and now it's such an interesting food for thought and i'm not going to share all of that because it's like i that's the museum's business to curate and i don't want to speak out of out of uh turn or or to speak without a full picture of yeah of of their sources um but they've you know uh, 
found a couple of letters and things like that. And it's like, oh, wow, well, history is, again, always changing the more yeah. material we have. So hopefully there'll be more more about Ma to celebrate as we continue. Yay. Mm. Yes. I want to see a movie or something or a documentary. I mean, it seems like, yeah, there's other, yeah, there's other documentaries and stuff about, and I, I hate to. Well, remember, Christina, we were going to do that. Comic. I think we should. I think we should. There you go. Totally we, we, do that. Yeah, we, we were about her. incredible people yeah. of Cincinnati and Ma Let Green Jen, be Let number Jen's, one. Jen's yeah. got an idea. What's, what's your idea, what Jen? Is it, Jen? Well, Ma Green herself wasn't necessarily dramified, right? But you can put a drama around her, on a fictional one around her on the boat, and she like washes it or something. You know? <laughs> Sends a barge through it. Historical fiction. What? sends a barge through it when right. you, know, when you got something to say when in doubt send a barge through it <laughs> yeah. but yeah. I think that's be... the t-shirt <laughs> you're gonna win the argument the there could be a movie on her a fictional one but yeah. based on true true people yeah no i, I will there, say yeah, I, I think a lot of historical fiction does a good job with that fictionalizing things around the people absolutely oh, oh like yeah. outlander yeah and I mean, she still saw a lot of trauma, like her husband and her sons both died on the boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there's still a lot, there's still enough stuff to write about. She what had very about, interesting like, life. You don't need to stretch too far to find mm -hmm. anything interesting to write about her. I mean, you think about shows like Frontier. What was that one? Sh what was that uh, movie with a TV show with the woman that was the doctor that was on for mm -hmm. like... Oh, uh, Quinn in Medicine. Dr. Yeah, Quinn yeah, like yeah. you have all of these shows like that. Why couldn't you have like, you know, Ma Green, Steamboat Captain, and have a couple seasons of it? I mean, there's a lot more interesting stuff than because probably was in that show. Outside of Cincinnati, not a lot of people I think know of no. her. But that does, people, know love people Sorry, love I was just thinking of like the USS Ma Green somewhere oh. in Star Trek. I exactly. love this. Oh yes, she. I think Janeway would Trek. sign off on that. I yeah, think I, I, would totally. I think we should we we should write to the creatives of Star Trek and tell them to do a, a USS Mogri. At least do lower decks first. <gasps> that may <laughs> that may work. Well, so Somebody tweet at them tomorrow and tell them they need a Mogreen USS Mogreen. <laughs> mm, there we the, go. The great thing that about putting her in the. Um, uh, I was insistent that, and I didn't get any pushback about this, but I, I definitely wanted to make sure that she went into the mother's chapter because I point out in, in, in her story that there's lots of different ways to be a mother. And she, she was called Ma Green by everybody outside of her family because she was kind of like everyone's maternal figure. Anybody who was on that ship was her kid in that regard, you know? And so she, everyone said ma really fondly um and so that i think that the, again she's also was mothering the ship you know so and she definitely her spirit is looking out for the ship as if it is one of her children um because she's looking out for anything that might be wrong with it um I and waking it, someone up to it so i think mm -hmm. that's i think we you know expanding the idea of what a caretaker is yeah. helps helps you know just society in general not feel like it's only locked into one gender or it's locked into one way of being a mother or way of being a caretaker a way of being a provider and so mm -hmm. i just thought that that was kind of a fun way in which she was a, a mother across several different ways of what that might mean yeah, yeah. 
and I mean, love. They, it was all about love. Didn't they say that she, like, the food on her boat was the best? Like, she, like the creature comforts were the best? Like, it was one of those things where she thought of things other people didn't think of. Yep. Exactly. She was making decisions to make it home, like, to make it feel like a home while you were there. Um, that's why she was very meticulous about, you know, making sure everything had curtains and the right um, table settings and all of these things that were, you know, not any lavish, uh, not anything that was like um, some sort of complete innovation. It was just thinking about that hospitality angle, um, mm -hmm. that domesticity and making that very profitable. So, and, but she, and she was looking at it with the eye of someone who would have been She's a good managing the house, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the, heavy. that yeah. the domestic sphere was, was one that women were expected to know intimately. So she just expanded that onto the ship and then made that feel like it was, uh, was a respite for people, mm -hmm. um, not just transportation, mm -hmm. but, but actual relaxation too. Yes. So talking about expanding yes, and, and looking out for people beyond just their own families, we can talk about Sarah Winchester. My girl. Yes. <laughs> My girl. We're going to different coastline. Different coastline. <laughs> different coastline. Um, and Have you've been, been to, the to the Winchester. Okay. <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> Winchester Mystery House. That's where we're going. Expansion. <laughs> to the max millions of dollars millions um, of dollars and you got to visit the mystery house which is oh. a place i have not been to i don't know christina and jen have you been to the winchester okay we're getting not i not have not i where is it i'm, I'm sorry san jen. jose san jose yes i haven't been there yeah it so. i was not about house? To, is this oh, the it's, weird house that's like i've seen stuff about it but the I labyrinthine 160 room mansion Mm-hmm. Stairs that go to nowhere, doors that go outside, but from like the second story. Mm -hmm. uh, built with the guidance of the spirit world. And you'll get so lost in there, and even the tour guides don't even know everything about it. Yeah, it takes tour guides almost, I mean, it takes tour guides months of repetition to get through any of that. The, the tours that I took while I was there, I was absolutely confounded. I was not about to write about this this house or this woman without going to it so i specific the minute that we the minute that we got the green light on the book um i obviously had to wait for pandemic to be um clear so mm -hmm. i waited so the, the winchester chapter was like later in my in, in in my writing um because i wanted to wait until it was safe enough to go to get on a plane and get out there um, and so I'd gotten on my vaccinations and I was like looking at the clock and I was like, okay, all right. And looking at my time frame, and I was like, all right, I, I've got, I've, now I've got a window to get out there and to start writing. And I'd contacted the house, the house historian, Janin Boehm, who is a wonderful lady. And she very kindly took me around and took me into places that were not open to the tours. And I Ooh. got a chance to talk with her for like, so I spent the entire day there, um, and, and, and went back around the grounds the next day and just, um, just spend as much time as I possibly could in my limited capacity there. But it's just, it's one of those spaces where you know that there is the weight of this being a haunted property. So when you read this chapter, you're going to hear, you're going to hear a lot of history and you're mm -hmm. going to learn a lot about Sarah Winchester. 
And you're going to have a lot of things debunked about this house in Mm -hmm. this chapter, because all of the things that were said during her life about her and about the house and the reasons why she was doing what she was doing are all things that were put onto her, sort of foisted onto her uh, by people trying to get their heads around why she was doing what she was doing. She never gave a reason for why she was doing what she was doing. Um, And that's why there was so much room for speculation. Mm -hmm. But that to me was what was very interesting. So my chapter was really trying to um, separate fact from fiction to give Sarah back a bit of her own story um, and to try to write a chapter that was differentiated from Colin Dickey's Ghostland, which is very much a comparison title to our book. Um, And we quote uh, Colin Dickey and Ghostland often Mm -hmm. in our book. Um, And I quote, uh, uh, Colin Dickey uh, in the Winchester Mystery House chapter Mm -hmm. too. Um, And so that was a little daunting thinking, all right, how can I, how can I differentiate from what is a very, very good chapter that's also myth busting about this house Mm -hmm. while still telling you, yeah, but it's still a haunted house though. It's just not haunted in the way that you think. Yes. And that was one of the things I wanted to bring the point out very early in the chapter when you're introducing it, it is haunted. Yes. It's a haunted house because we've made it haunted. Mm -hmm. So Yes. Exactly, exactly. So this was definitely a story of of a lot of fabrication around a lady who had a lot of money. And because uh, because she didn't like flaunt that money, um, the only way in which we really knew she had a lot of money was that she was spending a lot of money on this house. But what people don't know is that the house began to be self-sustaining from its orchards uh, pretty early on. So while the initial purchase of the house and the fact that she paid her workers twice the rate of anyone in California meant she had a very loyal workforce and um, the the house, again, was, was, was pretty much self-sustaining. And then the other things she was doing with her money, she was giving a lot of money anonymously to charity throughout her life. So um, I should probably go back and say why this lady had a lot of money. So Sarah Winchester... Um, was the wife of William Wirt Winchester, who was the heir to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company fortune. The Winchester family had made their money. They were from Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and so was Sarah Purdy, Lockwood Purdy. That was her maiden name. They were from uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And they, uh, the Winchester family had made their fortune initially in uh, innovating men's shirts hmm. to be easier to manufacture and also um, easier uh, to wear and to style. And um, they lost a lot of money during the Civil War because they refused to participate in uh, slave-based cotton. And they were ardent supporters of the Union cause, even though it was a great blow to their business. So Sarah and William got married in 1864. So in the midst of the Civil War, and uh, had a very subdued ceremony due to the sort of gravity of that time. Um, And so uh, right around this time, um, the Oliver Winchester, um, William's father, uh, Sarah's father-in-law, had purchased a company, the Winchester Repeating Rifle Company, or it was a a repeating rifle company and named it the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Um, And, had some innovators in the same way he'd been innovating with men's shirts. How can we more uh, efficiently design this product? Um, And 
created a very, very successful um, gun. Um, this had been a gun that he tried to get the union to buy. So he, he had been working on this uh, before uh, William and Sarah were married. Al Oliver had been trying to get union contracts with the Winchester repeating rifle. Um, and that didn't end up materializing. It would have actually quite helped the Indian cause, honestly, because it was, we were getting into, in this country, the first mechanized war, really. Um, and, uh, but it, the, the, the union didn't take him up on it. Um, what it did become famous for was westward expansion. And with westward expansion, you have a lot of Native American genocide. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is a very real aspect of our country and the real real, real dark part of our history. Now, the Winchester rifle was not necessarily used uh, exclusively against Native American populations. Native Americans used the Winchester rifle often. Um, they, they would call the Winchester rifle the spirit gun because it kept firing. Mm. So there was this sort of spirit-based thing even, you know, put onto this rifle. And so uh, the it had kind of been billed as sort of the gun that won the West um, when it was also just thought of as a bit of a implement of, of lawlessness in certain areas too. So there's this very, very complicated relationship that our country has always had to guns that was tied up in the name Winchester. Mm -hmm. So um, William died of tuberculosis and uh, in um, like, so Sarah dealt with loss of her father-in-law, her husband, and her baby daughter in like swift succession. Mm -hmm. um, it was in, in the 1880s. Um, so Sarah and William loved each other very deeply. And so when he died, he left everything to, uh, and I quote from his will, my beloved Sarah, and made her executrix of his will and his estate. And then when Oliver uh, Winchester had died, his shares went to his son, which then went to Sarah. And she was dealing with these two estates separately while grieving the loss of her infant daughter who had died from a condition known as marasmus, which mm -hmm. is when infants did not digest. And so her baby daughter like starved to death in like a month. And it, if you, I just can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine that we, you, you they, they, doctors could do nothing there. It was a condition that was not treatable at that time. It is difficult to treat today. It there is are really, babies that die of this today. It's, it's like just, as a new mom, that is oh, the thing you are focused on is that that kid is eating because is eating. of this. Yeah. It's so, it's, it, it's so, so here was these absolutely epic tragedies happening to this lady who was just this all around from all accounts, very nice, quiet, introverted lady who is in the middle of New Haven high society, mm -hmm. um, which does not, she does, she's not like a high society lady. She does not necessarily need or want to be fancy. She doesn't want to be having to entertain. She just kind of wants to go out at this point after all of this loss. She wants to go out with and be with her family, her extended family, her sisters because one of her dear sisters has gone out West and she thinks I loved going out West with William. I loved San Francisco area. So she goes out to check in on the Winchester company in the San Francisco office and just kind of takes a tour around. And one of the men who, uh, Ned Rambo, who's working on the Winchester office in San Francisco takes her around to the San Jose Valley and she falls in love with it because it reminds her of a trip to um, uh, the Ganada Vesta um, in uh, the, um, 
some of her um, mountainous Spanish, uh, so the mountains of Spain, where she had this incredible um, trip with William on like on their honeymoon. So she kind of creates this, her own sort of respite out in San Jose, where she doesn't have to be a part of Connecticut high society. And she Wait. doesn't have to be thrust into that. Pause. They did not honeymoon in Cincinnati? They did not. At that point, no. They no. actually took a European tour. Well, that's how they, they that should have like come back to choice. Cincinnati. They, they, they should have come back to Cincinnati. Yeah, um, sorry. I don't it's think just, oh, oh, it's, it's too that's easy. fair. That's fair. It was, I set that one up. I should have, I should have seen that one coming. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there was a real romanticism about why she picked what she picked um, and where she decided to sort of relocate to. Um, and so she bought this farmhouse um, and within six months had added a couple of stories and about 15 rooms to it. Wow. And then it just kept expanding. And it just kept expanding. And so here's this really, really wealthy lady. So she really was hoping that that her name and any of the things associated with it would not like, not necessarily that Californians wouldn't care about that. But no, they did. Because here, here she was inheriting millions of dollars in, in, in 19th century money. Mm -hmm. She's got like 8 million in 19th century money. So mm -hmm. this is like a lot of money. Um, she even was boggled by, she couldn't even really figure out how much she exactly had. And I, I don't even know if she even had an exact account of how much she actually had. She paid other people to keep track of that for her. Um, and then, um, so here she was building onto this farmhouse. Ostensibly, we think to maybe house her entire family there at some point, mm -hmm. but then it just was never quite finished. And you know how it is when you like, you want things to be perfect um, and you want to be able to to do something for, you know, this kind of grand reason and it just doesn't quite ever materialize. And that in and of itself is a mystery as to why it didn't end up being a place that housed her whole family. Some, many of her family did end up living there. Um, her, her niece Daisy was, was sort of a surrogate daughter. Um, and so people just really thought, why is this lady doing what she's doing? And they started telling rumors. And so um, one of the things about the Winchester mystery is that people were saying, oh, she ha she must be tormented by something. She's left everything for the other side of the country. And now she's building onto this house. And so the concept of her building to appease the spirits and the idea that she had consulted a medium who had told her to go do this to appease the spirits of those killed by the Winchester rifle, that was posited by people just trying to figure out a methodology to a wealthy lady that they were nosy about mm -hmm. because she didn't entertain when she was out there and people out there who were in high society in California were like, well, why am I not invited to this new grand house? Why am I not at going to a dinner party at the wealthiest lady's house? And so the elite of the area were really put out and nasty about it. Um, and so, and she was kind of famous for not admitting people to the house, except for neighborhood school, like school children who she would let run around in the gardens. Oh. Um, and so she was this very shy, reclusive figure who, who was always seen in mourning because she never stopped mourning for her beloved William. So she was devoted to William and kind of besotted with him and just was uh, much like Queen Victoria always like traveled with a picture of Prince Albert like and put it on her pillow or whatever. I mean, she, you know, Sarah took that love of her life kind of very seriously and was seen in mourning for the rest of her days. 
um, even when Victorian mourning was well, well out of fashion. Um, she, she died in, <laughs> in the 1930s. So this is a woman who had lived a really long life and had seen a lot of things come and go and never really ever gave any kind of answer as to why she did the things mm -hmm. that she did. And the, th the things being build a crazy looking house um, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And here's, here's why she was doing that, at least from what the actual records can tell us. She was subscribed to a bunch of different architectural magazines, and she is known to have sketched out all of the plans for the house on napkins and papers and everything. She, all of the designs around the house are Sarah's designs. Her and William for, oversaw their in, the building of their in-laws house. And it was one of the happiest times when they loved sharing the concept of putting this house together and talking with the contractors and overseeing all of that. And they both really took to it. And so in some ways, this was her sort of building her dream house via her own methods. She really was a kind of I think she would have loved to go into architecture. I think she mm -hmm. would have been a great architect. Um, but of course, society would not have allowed that. Um, so she had some money to burn. So she just, her passion, you know, people spend their money, any sort of side money they have, they might spend on something that they're passionate about. And her passion was architecture. And so she mm -hmm. just used the house as her sketchbook. Mm -hmm. And she loved paying people uh, well. And she gave people houses on her property. She would give them to her staff people. She would buy up surrounding areas that she could then have uh, orchards. And then any of the houses that were there, she would give to her staff. So it was this big extended family on this 160 acres at that point that she had uh, matching the 160 rooms of her mansion. I don't know that she did that deliberately, but it was, it was a comparable number. And, um, and and the the concept that she was always building, it was just sort of, I think how this must have happened is it was an offhanded comment, oh, oh, she's always building. And then somebody took that literally. Like she's always building 24-7 every moment of the day. Um. So there was this this concept that there was an obsession. She also was an insomniac. And also mm. people are nosy. So if you saw a woman all in black wandering in the middle of the night people started telling rumors about she has she's holding midnight seances oh yes to contact her beloved dead husband because she never remarried so here's this lady with all this money and she has and she is the queen of this castle and there is no man running it there's mm -hmm. there's there's some staff guys around you know she hired a japanese gardener and she paid him exquisitely in fact um named him in her will gave him money in her will even and the fact though that she had a japanese gardener at a, a time that was very racist was also mm -hmm. like suspect to others you know the fact that she was willing to hire people of color on her estate you know it was like that that branded her as more of a of a weirdo in the in the in the image of the time and that this is some of a lot of what i have written about i owe i'm going to show this book because it's one of the, I was obsessed with this book and I'm still obsessed with the book. It's called Captive of the Labyrinth by Mary Jo Ignafo. And it's about, it's, it's a, it's just a very detailed, comprehensive uh, biography of Sarah Winchester's life. So I really owe a lot to this. Mm. So, um, so for me, I, I was curious about, okay, well then what's, why is it, what got it to be the Winchester Mystery House today? And why is this still, this pervasive kind of myth that she was haunted by spirits, that she was building obsessively to appease the spirits, um, when that's not founded at all, she didn't name the house in her will. Mm. Didn't name the house in her will. All the interior, 
the beautiful furnishings were all auctioned off and the house was deemed by legal counsel of no value. Oh, jeez. And so here was this potentially about to be torn down building when a guy who had run an amusement park thought, you know, the mystery house at my amusement park is really popular. And here's this very confounding, confusing house with all of these weird twists and turns would make a really good mystery house. And there's a lot of rumors about this lady already. So why don't I open this house of this crazy lady and the year after sarah's death she died in the house of a heart attack and uh, her bedroom is there you can visit it and there's definitely a weight of i i didn't realize when i walked into the room where she died that it was the room where she died mm -hmm. um but i felt this i felt time absolutely stop and i felt you know you know when you're in that weight of a haunted space and you just it feels different just feels different and i just knew something was like really heavy and important not necessarily sad but just mm -hmm. deeply important so there was the weight of import that was definitely in her in her room and then i found out that that's where she passed and i thought okay all right well and the house loves her and she loves the house it always did um but the year after she died the winchester amusement company opened mm. so that was the the new venture of this house that had been deemed of no value and it was opened as a ready-made attraction and then that's when the the perpetuation of haunted by spirits midnight seances all that stuff any of the things that had been sort of gossiped about as possibilities for her behavior was made codified by this the winchester amusement company right um and you know they added they added the iteration of 13 to everything. There were a few things that had the number 13 already in the house steps, um, other uh, hooks, things like that. There were, all of these things were added. The, the seance room was like a gardener's bedroom. It's not, it's a, it's a small Are room. Are you it's telling just... me the stained glass spider window with the 13 threads through it was an addition? The spider web windows were hers. Oh. That's what, that's what's interesting too is that um she spider web themes were really popular in the 19th century. Um yeah. Clara Driscoll was a woman who designed all of Lewis Comfort Tiffany stained glass lamps. She was you mm -hmm. know a lady designed those by the way. Um I do a one woman show as Clara. So also from Ohio, so very important lady. Yeah. So she she did a lot of very famous designs and she used spider webs in a lot of her designs. So that that was actually just sort of a popular thing motif. in the 19th century as a motif. And, you know, I sort of posit that, well, she, of course she would like spiders. They were always building. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's in, so those were hers. Um, but the other iterations of like 13 candles in the chandelier, in the ballroom, um, the ballroom was what Disney modeled the Haunted Mansion ballroom off of though. So there's, there's that haunted parallel. Um, but that a lot of those iterations of 13 were added. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the quirk of the seance room is that you can, when you go out the door, you can't get back into it. So you actually have to go all the way around the house to get back into that particular room. But it really was probably a workroom or a gardener's bedroom. Um, so, so sorry to spoil some of the fun here of this. But what I find really interesting is that had the Winchester Amusement Company not opened, we probably would not still have this house today. So here this goes back to what we were saying is sometimes haunted properties, they actually have to embrace the ghost narratives to be able to keep the doors open. So in this case, would I be talking to you about Sarah's real history if we didn't still have the house if lies mm -hmm. weren't told about her, would I be able to be here to tell you the truth about her? Mm -hmm. it, you know, she she gave millions and millions of dollars to charity um, in then money. 
um, she created a, a $2 million endowment to create the William Winchester Tuberculosis Hospital in, back in New Haven. Um, that was part of her like life's work. Um, and, and she was known to just be a, an anonymous uh, benefactor to a whole lot of various charitable causes through her life. Um, and her staff just adored her. So the house is haunted. It's haunted by the staff that loved the building and are still taking care of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and the fact that like, you know, her gardener, um, that the money was left in her will to him and he named, uh, his granddaughter, uh, is, is partly named for her too. Oh, so like there was this, oh. like, there was this extended, she loved having having her staff have kids in the house who wouldn't after losing your child, Mm -hmm. you know, she was known sort of as this quiet aunt to, you know, neighborhood children, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who didn't see the adult crazed person that other people were putting on to her. Um, she also suffered from, um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, deeply painful condition in her later years and it deformed some of her muscles. And so she was always seen with a veil because she didn't like how it had deformed some of her face. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, but again, not people not knowing that would just see this shrouded figure and thought that she was just this eccentric when it was like, it was a real, it was a real condition that she was dealing with. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I love, I loved writing about her, learning about her, that house is very, it has a very powerful energy. Some of the reasons why some of the things don't add up is because after this 1906 earthquake, she didn't rebuild some of what had fallen. So Mm. some of the doors go to nowhere because there was part of the house that fell apart and they just took the debris away. Ah, I see. So some of it is a little bit more mundane Mm -hmm. than is actually mysterious. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of it was she didn't like how her uh, architectural um, you know, her sketchbook had turned out. And so they just didn't continue with that particular iteration. So some mm-hmm. of it was just an untrained architect, you know, experimenting in real scale <laughs> with her ideas yeah. and not all of it would work out. So they, so they would do stuff over it. So there really is this nesting doll quality to the house because sometimes she was just putting additions on because some, it wouldn't always work. It wouldn't always seem how she had envisioned it. I thought I was going to be very claustrophobic in there, but she actually constructed it with a great deal of skylights and passageways that allow for much more light to come in than I would have thought. Mm-hmm. But goodness, are you disoriented? So I that's bet. really the most the the most fascinating thing to me is that I have I have no idea where even looking at my pictures I took in that house, I have no idea where I was or how I got there, <laughs> even though I was led through and I literally was so turned around. I don't have a good sense of direction. So I literally would be lost and someone would have to find my bones in that house. Mm-hmm. Cause I wouldn't, I would end up somewhere I couldn't get back from. And then I would be, I'd be a goner, but, right. um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I was so concerned about getting this chapter right. And by doing right by her and also trying to make sure I was still giving you dear reader an entertaining story. I was mm-hmm. deeply stressed about this, but stressed out of love. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to her grave in New Haven, Connecticut. I like prayed at her grave for her permission to talk about all of this. <laughs> And like her blessing. Right. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, just because, again, for me, it all comes down to respect. Mm-hmm. Because I just wanted to set the record straight that she was not, in fact, a mad woman. She should have been in the widow's chapter. But mm-hmm. she is in the quote unquote mad women chapter because that's what people said about her and assumed that she was. Yeah. And so that's why it's like, well, let's let's reclaim that particular narrative. And of course, you know, the only reason why why she 
didn't have a harder time is that she was too wealthy for anybody to institutionalize. Yeah. So, you know, no one would have, no one would have dared to actually like say these things to her face. Right. They just sat behind her back and, you know, and then just gossiped about the house in general. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so Jan and Boehm, the house historian, you know, as I say in the chapter, she said, I have to walk a very fine line because people come here to this house with expectations of a haunted house mm -hmm. and we have to give them something. And so we, we, we preface a lot of things with legend says, Yes, and it was rumored that, and and all of these various other things yes. that they have to sort of put a disclaimer on, but they still have to talk about the myths because the myths persist. Yes, and have persisted. So, and 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 certainly, and I loved Dame Helen Mirren in the movie Winchester about her, Sarah Winchester, and the only thing that is true about that film is that Helen Mirren portrays Sarah Winchester as a very kind and intelligent woman. That is true. Also exquisite black Victorian regalia. <laughs> yes. I love life goals for fashion, for sure. Um, and the only other thing that's true is that some of it was filmed in the house. Yeah. <laughs> everything else. Everything else. I mean, it's a great ghost story, but it's entirely fabricated. The rest of uh, it is just Hollywood. It's just Hollywood. Yeah. It's absolutely Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but again, but, but the Winchester house has to reckon with this because it's part of the cultural narrative that has been put onto this house and you can't completely fight it. And you also don't want to turn down the money it might bring you because yes. I can tell you that house with that many rooms, it's a lot of money to upkeep. There aren't orchards self-sustaining it anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's uh so that's the story of the Winchester mystery house. Sorry to be a buzzkill about that haunted house that is not haunted in the way that you think, but it is still haunted. I promise. No, I, I enjoy those stories. I like debunking stuff, but then again, like I'm the wet dish rag on everyone's paranormal joy. <laughs> I'm that well, we, yeah, we try to find the right balance. Yeah, of, that's of why I like this reason. book. Not saying you have to be a wet dish rag to like that book. That's not the message I'm trying to say anyway. So I want to um, visit this place now. I, I do mean, too. it sounds Me really too. interesting. Just the I, 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 I mean, when you were talking about it. There's a lot of old houses that have weird stairways and stuff for the mm -hmm. same reasons you're saying. They remodeled something and just covered up something or put a wall there or whatever because they didn't want it anymore. To bury the so bodies. Many old house, so, <laughs> so many houses have weird aspects to them because of bad remodeling. Oh, yes. And, oh, you goodness, know, yes. It, it just kind of seems interesting that it's just she just changed her mind and had so much money. But that was one thing I liked about the book was how you said that society didn't like women. And you mentioned this in the witch chapter, too, that they really disliked women of means that, like, didn't need anyone's help. Where they were just, and it sounds Man. like that's how this woman was. Everybody just made up a story about her, but they knew nothing. Yeah, there wasn't a man to control her. I'm sorry, yes, that yes. just hit home yesterday. So... In front of everyone at Zincinnati, this man kept persisting, pers like persistently asking me if I needed help as I was getting my books out of the car. And I said, no. And he was like, do you need help? And I said, no. And he's like, do you need help? I'm like, no. And then finally, he's like, are you sure? And I looked at him like, sir, I've told you four times I don't need help. I'm putting things into a wagon. And then the amount of cursing out of his mouth really? for me saying no to him was wow. it drew just people just out of yeah it drew people out of Cincinnati and to uh, 
just to go break it up because he was angry i told him no and just some stranger on the street it was just a rando on the street men don't like being told no no by a woman it just Mm. is and it and it just and i i don't there there really needs to be a shift in these these expectations um because i i just boundaries people boundaries mm-hmm. come yeah. on if some you know it just i think that there's there's definitely pushback that we're you know all fielding and feeling um and there's certainly been some pushback on this book for its feminist agenda and andrea and i were like oh boy we could have gone so much harder Mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh you think this is bad like you should hear us talk outside of the book like <laughs> well because it's written by women it's about women and it's what happens to yeah. women because of men <laughs> I, I mean i'm sorry like i i'm so sorry that just telling you history is a feminist agenda right i'm well, sorry that, that like, that's just that's the argument that they're having about telling the truth about slavery and telling yeah, the truth exactly. about all these historical institutions it's that mm-hmm. somehow you're you're tainting it by actually explaining what really happened and oh. it's totally ridiculous yeah it, it's can we become a a, a world of amazons please <laughs> there we go not the company no not no, the no. company no, of I the warrior women yes the warrior women the warrior women yeah it, it's <laughs> Yeah, and the thing that with also struck me about the Winchester story is she was dogged by the spiritualist movement, and then it seems with later in life after she died with the house, the sideshow show attraction vaudevillian mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. of the nineteen late twenties and and thirties. Mm-hmm. So it, it she saw so much happen, and it those events really colored how people looked at her completely but kudos to her yeah. for not giving it she shit. didn't get she didn't, she didn't yeah. care she didn't, she didn't have to yeah and, and <laughs> she could purchase the that. united states at one point i am sure well yeah. and perhaps because she had so much money and had such loyal people with her that's why she wasn't she was untouchable yeah right. like if she her staff really was secure. unhappy then like people would but since they were right. happy you know that gave her insulation hmm. yeah, she they was, took care she, of her it's true, and that that there was there was a very very loving relationship between you know the people in her life, and and also too, and and you can see it. One of the things that deeply moved me was moving through the staff quarters. A lot of the things that she did and expansions to the house were actually to make the staff quarters and the way, the places that they worked more comfortable. There's beautiful inlaid flooring, beautiful like parquet flooring and little finials and little aspects of decoration in the staff quarters. No other historic house that I have ever been into has those kinds of details and flourishes and Mm -hmm. and decorations in the staff quarters. They're all very sparse. Money was clearly not spent there. In this case, she really wanted them to feel that they were in a place of, of comfort and beauty. And I think that that's really incredible. She had like these... She had wash tubs for the staff that had plumbing that was like, uh, there was an aspect of it that was state of the art and that there was washboards that were put into the sinks themselves so that 
you know, the cleaners wouldn't actually be having to rub their knuckles raw on, on actual um, washboards. It was part wow. of the sink itself. And that was like one of the first tubs to have like done that. And, you know, the fact that they had hot and cold taps so that no one had to go out and get water. They had, they, it was right to them on the upper floors. Um, that is, I mean, it was, it was a small thing, but like it, it cut down on so much of the backbreaking part of the labor. Um, and that was something that the tour guides really emphasized of like, look at these little things that we wouldn't necessarily think twice about now right. because we don't, we, we're so accustomed to washing machines now. We don't have a sense of like, of how this was actually a courtesy, um, mm -hmm. and, 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 an, and a great expense. Um, so that to me was just a stunning thing was take, I took so many pictures of the staff quarters to really just drive that home for me that she wanted their place and their areas to feel decorated. And, well, and she treated um, them like human crazy. beings. Mm -hmm. And definitely like family. They all considered yeah. themselves family. So. Yeah. Well, we're it's, heading up to two hours. Yes. So oh we God, probably should wrap it up. We, we could probably talk for six hours if we want to. Sarah Winchester <laughs> is my longest chapter. So I suppose yeah. that's, uh, uh, <laughs> I suppose I was game, game for that, right? <laughs> But uh, for social media, where can people purchase the book? Where can they follow you? I know you're on Twitter because you liked one of my tweets recently. I love, I love Twitter. That's my so all for all social media. I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter at Leanna Renee, L E A N N A R E N E E. That's where I am most of the time. I am on Instagram. I did start a TikTok because Ooh. I was told to by oh. my publisher. Um, yes. So and I'm terrible at it, but I. I, I'm doing it though, so I'm there. Um, but I am an old, and it is not, and it is we new. We get it. And we're I, here, yeah. We're here so for you. I don't know. So you, so if you enjoy terrible editing cuts, you will love my TikTok. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. So, but I do want to get one of the things I want to be doing is like just doing little TikToks of me running away from Gothic mansions. Um, <laughs> that's, like, awesome. that's my that's my goal. I have one up. But I need to just find more gothic mansions and have somebody just, you know, uh, video me running away from just them. Just go to Newport, Rhode Island. See, there we go. Just yeah. <laughs> you, you can't throw a stone next, without hitting one of those. It's true. It's totally. So, yeah. So I want to be just doing my little women running from houses, gothic, uh, gothic novel nonsense, um, considering that that's my favorite kind of uh, fiction. So please in historical novel. gear. Oh, Dress. of course. I mean, yeah. okay. Yeah. I have to be in a long black gown, otherwise, no one would recognize me. I um, do follow a woman on Instagram and TikTok that runs around the Palace of Versailles in Rococo fashion. That's awesome. So I, I can totally see you. I love Anna, her doing already. this, and yeah. no one stops her. She's just. There I think to, she has okay. the permission of the okay. museum to do it. That's fantastic. But that's yeah, and do it in American like Gothic fashion. That's uh yeah yeah that's so 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 the those are my social medias as far as the book is concerned it is available wherever books are sold so mm -hmm. this um uh, Kensington is the publisher so you can go to the website Kensington Books um or again order it into your local bookstore one but of the it's on Audible things, it's on Audible yeah so we have an audiobook we have a digital book so it's available through any digital vendor and also in trade paperback. Um, request it at your local library. Libraries buy books and libraries mm -hmm. are a huge supporter of authors. So, you know, never feel bad about going and getting a book from the library. It still registers as actual sales for us. So also to support your local independent bookstore, um, if you go to IndieBound.org and you plug in your zip code, that will pull up the local independent bookstores near you and you can order it in. You can buy local, support local. And also it helps us too. So 
um, all of the above. And and for those watching from our hometown, collective hometown, uh, <laughs> I will see you all at Books by the Bank on November 19th. So I'm so excited to be there. Uh, and I, I will, uh, I'll put little heart eyes over Ma Green's chapter. Yes. <laughs> and um, I have a question. How often are the tours? Are they all year round? They are. Um, obviously, October and fall in general is the busy season. So go to boroughsofthedead.com for mm -hmm. uh, information about uh, New York City ghost tours. But we also sign up for the mailing list because we do periodically do virtual tours that can be accessed from anywhere in the world. So we definitely do have people who follow us from all over. And so we do have lots of access to book talks that we're doing that are virtual. So um, and we're also going to be trying to do some stuff through the winter months um, that are some of our tours in a virtual setting. So um, definitely check out birdsofthedead.com. And um, the only time we take off pretty, pretty much off entirely is like January through mid-March mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. no one wants to walk around New York City in it's cold. February. It is, yeah so it is just and treacherous sometimes mm -hmm. so yeah. um but uh but yeah it is it's a uh it's a great company and uh and if I am not there leading a tour do not worry that my my fellow guides are are some of the best in the business so um I'm not really doing many tours this season because I am doing this book so mm -hmm. So this is this is my this is the tour I'm giving the tour of this book. Yes. So yeah, it's a very so good you. tour. Thank you. Well, on that note, this time you you thank you so much for for you taking this much time with me. I'm honored. Yes, it's oh, been wonderful. So interesting. Yeah. Yes, we can have you on again and talk more. I know we would love to have you on again. Well, let me yeah. bring my let me bring my co-author. Yes, yeah. that would be fantastic. Maybe maybe pick her brain about Lizzie. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> we're all home. She's a, a Lizzie Borden's another one. I wonder if she's glorified. Oh, she's in the book, and oh, okay. is she glorified she's in the okay. book? And it is a complex. I mean, I knew right away. Like, like Andrea knew that Sarah Winchester was mine, and I knew Lizzie Borden was was hers because we each had our pet projects yeah and uh and i i was very impressed by mm -hmm. by andrea's chapter on her um because it is it explores all the complexities of it and uh does not answer the question of whether she did or didn't do it because no one can officially really answer that that's they the can't. thing which is wild yeah. which is why people are so obsessed with it right yes. um, that's why yeah. it's an evergreen true crime mm -hmm. truly yes truly and it's evergreen. just assumed that she did well, I, I will say the book throws a lot of wrenches into that oh, statement. Okay. So, yes. But so now you have to that's for reading. next time. I will get it. That's for next time. <laughs> yeah, we'll let we'll let Andrea actually talk about her own chapter. So, I'll I'll uh, I'll introduce all y'all yes. so she can come and talk about Lizzie. Yes. Awesome. So, for on tonight. Note, yes. Yes, on that note. Thank you everyone for joining us for season four opener of the Cincinnati Cabin of Curiosities presents the Hometown Haunts podcast. I am your host, Kat Logo, and with me is Christina Wald and Jen Kohler. You can follow us at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter and at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And please, like I said earlier, we are dying to hear from you. Please send us your paranormal and fringe history from your neck of the woods to our email hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com everyone good night and stay spooky bye 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 thanks everyone